Our text this evening is uh, the next section of this, Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. Hear the word of our God. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and make your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would open our eyes, that we may, uh, sorry, open our ears, uh, that we may listen to your word tonight. Soften our hearts that we might believe your word tonight. And renew your image in us that we might obey your word even more. We ask this in the name of Jesus who saves sinners and sanctifies saints. Amen. Today is sort of an auspicious day. Today is the day that I began to initiate my children into the wonder and joy of the Princess Bride. My daughter was a little confused because I kind of started in the middle of the movie because I just wanted to see one scene, and they basically talked me into watching it farther on from that particular scene. And, of course, being the inquisitive child she is, she kept asking questions, to which I kept saying, just watch. The scene that we started with was the Battle of Wits. Okay, Uh, you're familiar with the Battle of Wits. Of course, Buttercup who is betrothed to the prince who has been kidnapped uh, by Vincini the Great and his cohorts in crime, who have been defeated by the dread pirate Scott, uh, is seated with lovely Buttercup, who has a um, blindfold upon her. And that was one of the many questions that my daughter asked me, why can't she see? (laughs) So I had to explain the the kidnapping thing. And Dread Scott, uh, Dread Roberts, I always want to say Scott, That was a great law case. Nothing to do with this movie. (laughs) See, I'm getting old. My brain is confusing all of these things. He he is the one who who initiates this battle of wits with Vincini, who, of course, is Sicilian. He commits one of the three great blunders, one of which is, of course, never engage in a land war in Asia, the second of which, 
don't go, uh, don't go in with Sicilian when death is on the line, which is what was going on here. And so the, the battle of wits was, in fact, to choose which of the two goblets had poison in it. And it was the dread pirate Roberts who had turned and poured the odorless poison that Humperdinck will later identify by sniffing it, nonetheless, <laughs> places the two cups between them, and that's when Vincini engages in his rather long and laborious reasoning, because he is so brilliant, to decide which one he should draw. And being not quite sure, he distracts good old Pirate Roberts, so he looks, and there he switches the cups. He then watches the pirate as he takes the one that is in front of him and he, before he drinks, he waits to see how quickly the pirate drinks his own. And seeing that the dread pirate Scott gobbles it down, he then takes, it, takes his own, not realizing he has taken poison. See, what he does not know is that the pirate has developed, spent over years developing an immunity to the poison, and so he can drink it freely. He indeed outwitted the Sicilian. The switching of the cups, that's the point. What, we're going to see, what we see here in this text is really a switching of the cups. But there's only one that has poison in it in this particular instance, and that is the one that Jesus will drink. The big idea is that Jesus switched cups with us, taking what was due us. The first part of uh, what we're doing with this text or seeing with this text is that, first of all, Jesus submitted to the will of his Father. We see that they have celebrated the Lord's table. They have all protested greatly that they would not, in fact, betray Jesus in any way, shape, or form. They leave there. They sing a hymn, which was probably Psalm 118, and they go to a place that they have probably frequented because Judas knew exactly where it was and that they would be there, even though he was not with them when they left. It's a familiar place. It's called Gethsemane. It is on the Mount of Olives. It is a garden that is there, and it is a garden named Gethsemane because there is an olive press there. That's what Gethsemane means, olive press, an appropriate thing to find on a mount full of olive groves, right? sort of appropriate for the reality that what's going to happen is that there in this garden, Jesus and his disciples will be pressed or afflicted. That's really the idea behind that word, to be tempted or to be afflicted, is the idea of pressure, just like you see in an olive press, pressing the oil out of the olives. They're both going to be tested, pressured in this garden. Jesus himself will be tempted to forsake the cross in this garden. The disciples will be tempted to forsake their rabbi in the garden. Where he goes is not nearly as important as why he goes there. According to the text, Jesus goes here to this quiet place outside of the city because he wants to pray. And the reason he wants to pray is because he is so distressed, he is so troubled, and he is deeply grieved. The words in English really do not capture the essence of what's going on here. It's not, you know, oh, I'm sad, you know. He is utterly distraught, is really what's going on in these words in the Greek. He is about to come essentially undone. 
okay? This is striking him to the core of his very being, knowing what he is about to do, what is going to happen in the next 24 hours. He is deeply distressed and grieved. And as J.C. Ryle notes, prayer is the best practical remedy we can use in time of trouble. And so it is in prayer that Jesus agonizes about what lays before him. And, what, and, the, and Matthew says that he falls upon his face. We have many instances when Jesus is praying, and this is the only time that he specifically says that Jesus is, has fallen upon his face. How often do you fall upon your face in prayer? I know I don't fall upon my face in prayer very often. Do you want to know when I do? When what I'm praying about is so incredibly serious. When I am incredibly distraught. Some of those times were during the search process. <laughs> when I'm looking for a new job and something has fallen through and I'm on my face before God crying out to him, help me please. Okay, so this is serious. Jesus has brought all of his disciples aside from Judas with him. Some of them are, most of them are at a distance. He brings the big three Peter, John, and James, the sons of Zebedee, with him a little farther, and he steps a little farther back. And now some of you might be thinking, like some uh, other people have thought, how do they know what, they pray, what he prayed because they fell asleep? Well, they weren't asleep the whole time. <laughs> they fell asleep after he started to pray, and so they heard enough. And then he woke them up, remember? I'm sure they heard some more of what he was praying. So let's not give the disciples too hard of a time. They heard something. Okay, but we see that Jesus is praying, and he prays again, and he prays some more. Jesus is earnest and persistent in this prayer that he is making. Okay? Jesus, in this prayer, expresses his own will or desire. Okay? He says, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Okay? He makes known what he would like to see happen, and yet he says, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Jesus is submitting to the Father's will. Way back in Matthew 6, when the disciples asked how to pray, Jesus said, among other things, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus is practicing what he preached. At this crucial moment, not just in his personal history, but in all of history, Jesus must pray to receive the strength he needs for what is to come. And not just for what is to come, but to obey the will of his Father. He submits to him. Effective prayer is that which submits to God's will. And so we see that essentially prayer is not about changing God's will. It's not like magic that if we say the right words, we'll get God to do what we want. Really what prayer is, is aligning our will with God's will. That's what ends up inevitably happening when we're, when we're praying sincerely, we're saying, Lord, you want to accomplish, accomplish, but help me to embrace it. 
in those years in which Amy and I were praying and ended up here. Okay? One of the key things that happened somewhere along the line, I can't remember exactly when it was, but when we were saying, where you want us to go, we will go. I remember when I asked Amy, how does Arizona sound? Okay? She, she was not jumping up and down for joy going, let's go to Arizona! Okay? But it was, if that's where God wants us to be, then that's where we should be. And we won't know where he wants us to be unless we apply. Okay? Submission to God's will. That's really where our prayers ought to be going. Where they, they need to be moving. Okay? Jesus' prayer is about to be answered. And at the end of this text, it is answered. How is it answered? Judas shows up to betray him with a squad of soldiers. The father says, not your will, but mine. Jesus, okay, catch that. Jesus, who is perfectly righteous, okay, there's no sin that would, that would say, oh, I shouldn't grant this prayer, okay? There's no wrongdoing on the part of Jesus that would mean that God shouldn't hear his prayer, there was no lack of earnestness on the part of Jesus. We, we hear, hear from other texts that he sweated like drops of blood, or perhaps even sweated blood. So there was an earnestness, there was a persistence, there's a submission that takes place in this, and yet God says, not your will, but my will. So let's just remember, it's not about how hard you pray. You're not going to get your way. His way is what matters. And so we find that um, faced with the most difficult day of his life, Jesus needs to pray so he can stay on course. This is the mission that he was sent to accomplish. The time is now, and he's afraid, and he receives strength through prayer. Second thing is that Jesus drank the cup that we deserved. Now we get into the switching of the cups. What is it that the Father wanted him to do? And that is to drink the cup. This is an expression that is used uh, frequently in Scripture to, to figuratively refer to uh, submission to a severe trial or death. We see this earlier on in this, in this gospel when some of the disciples ask to be elevated to his right and left hand when he gets into the kingdom. And Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I will drink? Can you undergo the baptism I will undergo? And they, of course, go, oh, yeah. They did not quite understand the cup that he would drink, the suffering that he would embrace. There are two cups that are mentioned in Scripture. The one that is mentioned most frequently is, in fact, the cup of wrath. God's cup of wrath. A couple of passages. There are more. Psalm 75. In the hand of the Lord is a cup foaming, uh, sorry, full of foaming wine mixed with spices. Sounds good, doesn't it? He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Jeremiah 25. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath. 
and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. We see it as well in places like Revelation, where the cup of wrath is poured out. And so what happens here, what's going to happen upon the cross, is that as a substitute for sinners, Jesus is going to experience the wrath of God. He's going to drink it down, so to speak. It is not about the physical pain. Okay? What is so devastating to Jesus is the loss of the Father's pleasure in him. He has always known the Father's pleasure in him. There had not been a nanosecond in his entire existence from eternity until that point that he had not known the Father's pleasure in him. And in that moment, he is about to experience the Father's wrath, not because he deserves it, but because our sin is laid on him. It's as if he takes our clothes, filthy and stained, and pretends to be us, and the the wrath that is due to us is poured out on him. It is the cup that we have earned for our disobedience and independence. I was listening to Tim Keller recently and talking about Psalm 119, and he refers to Mark Twain in the course of that. And he mentioned that Mark Twain had a frequent dream. Okay? I've not read the mem- personal memoirs of Mark Twain, so I'm trusting Tim Keller on this. Okay? This frequent dream was that there was a giant Bible falling out of the sky that lands on him and crushes him. Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens, had an abiding sense that God was not happy with him. That he had broken God's law and the penalty for that law was coming to come down on his head and crush him like a bug. And so here's the interesting thing. It comes down upon Jesus and crushes him. That big Bible, so to speak, fell upon Jesus. Not us. Okay? What drove him to this? It was the love for the Father and his people that drove him to drink this cup of wrath. It's similar to the dread pirate Roberts. What drove him to engage in the battle of wits with the great Vincini? His love for Buttercup. If he hadn't have loved her, he wouldn't have been there. But he risks death that he might rescue the love of his life. It is love that brought Jesus to this place. Love for his father and love for his bride that he drinks this bitter cup. And unlike the pirate Roberts, he had no immunity. It would kill him.
because he is clothed in our imputed sin, because he appears to the Father in that way as filthy and vile, the Father recoils and reacts. Think for a moment when you were a child and you heard those words. I don't think Amy's really said them yet. Go to your room and wait until your father comes home. I don't think I heard that very much. I don't know why I didn't hear it very much. I was not a very good boy. Okay. But the picture that you have is that dad is going to come home. He is going to hear what you have done. And he will be incredibly mad at you. And he is going to go to your room and you are going to feel his wrath. Multiply that exponentially. Because Jesus is bearing all the sin of all his people. Every one. And the Father is righteous in his wrath, and it all comes down upon his head. Jesus takes the cup of wrath, do our sin, drinking every foul drop of it, which leads us to the third thing. Drink the cup he earned for us. There's a second cup that is mentioned in Scripture often, And that is the cup of salvation. Psalm 16, for instance. Lord, you have assigned me my portion in my cup. You have made my lot secure. Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Psalm 116. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. So there's a good cup. Jesus earned the good cup. We earned the bad cup. But he moved them. He didn't have to distract us. Hey, look, like Vincini did. He said, I'll take that for you. You take this from me. Okay? Jesus earned our salvation the cup of God's blessing, the cup of God's joy. And it's meant to, it's given in order to be enjoyed, to be partaken of. It's not a souvenir cup like you get at the Diamondbacks game and you kind of keep it there, you know, uh, on your shelf or something. It's meant to be enjoyed, to be used, not preserved. But there's a problem. And part of the problem is that Satan seeks to keep you from drinking that cup to God's glory. Sinclair Ferguson notes that Satan cannot ultimately destroy a Christian believer, but he is well able to destroy our assurance and our joy, our pleasure in the gospel. We are secure in the hands of Jesus, and yet what the evil one can do is to get you to not enjoy the benefits of your salvation. He tricks you into walking in despair, walking in depression, walking in guilt and a sense of condemnation. It's all a lie. 
If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you have no part of that. You have no part of the cup of wrath. You have the cup of blessing. And we are meant to grow in our experience of that cup. We are to grow in the joy of of drinking of that cup. But we see that the evil one uses the law to condemn us so that we forget that Christ was condemned for us. Instead of that, he offers you a cup of shame, disgrace, guilt, condemnation. When I was a young Christian, uh, the church I had joined was uh, right off the highway in Nashua, New Hampshire. And uh, right between us and the highway was a Hojo's, Howard Johnson's, for those of you who don't know. Um, And after Siegel's Fellowship, every Tuesday night, just about, we would go to the Hojo's because they had a little restaurant, and we would hang out, we'd talk and everything. And there were two guys, okay, Scott and Danny. And Scott and Danny, for various reasons that um, had nothing really to do with them, well, partially to do with them, they were awkward socially, shall we say, okay? And part of what they would do is they would challenge each other, and I, th- and I think this was to get the attention of the girls, but you know, this only happens when you're in sixth grade, okay? Single guys, don't try this. And they would, like, mix things in glasses, Bet you won't drink that. (laughs) Bet you I will. (laughs) Okay? And so they would drink these disgusting concoctions that they make from whatever is on the table. Part ice cream soda, part mustard, a little bit of ketchup. Let's throw a little bit of tea in there too. All kinds of disgusting, vile things. They smashed together and they would drink this. And that is what Satan is trying to do to you. Instead, we are to fight for the joy that is ours because of Christ through prayerful meditation upon Christ's work. He frees us from that. Part of what saddens me a little bit is the the Lenten season is usually one in which people wallow in sorrow and self-pity, which is another word for pride. We kind of like, oh, whoa, you know... And, and there's, a, there's a right sense in which we, we need to recognize that Jesus did this because of what we had done. But there should be a joy that is there, not a sorrow that is there. This is not a time to, re, to wallow in self-pity. It's a time to rejoice and to imbibe. And so I, I cannot even say it enough, to drink often. Drink much. Pretend you live in Arizona and it's water. Okay? You don't want to get spiritually dehydrated. Okay? What happens if you don't drink enough water here in good old Arizona? You start to get a headache. Okay? You get parched. You can get sick to your stomach just like that poor girl at the Mission Aviation Day. You know, um, She caused us to flee. Um, you get sick. When you aren't drinking from the proper cup, often enough, you get spiritually 
sick. You get spiritually weak. Drink often. Drink deep. Sink on down. Don't sip. It's not hot tea. Like the dread pirate Roberts in Vicini, Jesus switched the cups. But only one had poison. The one that Jesus drank. Like Roberts, love drove him to drink it. He suffered so that we could know the enjoyment of God's salvation, of his love, of his blessing. We do not honor him by mourning but by rejoicing in all of the benefits that he has won for us. Let's pray. Father, it is indeed amazing what Jesus has done. We have nothing to compare this to. It was not a split-second decision that he made. It was not a question of he might die. Jesus knew exactly what would happen. And so I ask that you would transform us so that we might live in the enjoyment of the cup of salvation that was won for us. Help us to honor and glorify Jesus as we enjoy it by faith. To glorify you because we are satisfied in Jesus Christ. And we ask this in the name of Jesus who bore our sin. Amen.